But anyway, I think I know most of you. I'm John. I'm the assistant pastor. Uh, Dan is on vacation. Dan and Kimberly and his family, they're down in, in Florida enjoying some sun. They'll be flying back tomorrow. So if you think about it, pray for them. And uh, this is indeed our last Sunday of 2023. And 2023 has been a quite a remarkable year for this church. Um, as I've thought about it over the last week and the things that uh, this church has, has been through and all the things that we've, we've, we've done together from moving to that place over there um, that functioned as a, a lounge and a church lounge on Saturday nights and a church on Sunday mornings and then was a defunct funeral home and um, had lots of mirrors to being able to work together to redo this space uh, to get it into a place that we could meet in. Um, becoming an actual church, not just a church plant anymore, uh, ordaining our elders uh, and things. So it's, it's been an exciting year of 2023 for us. 2024 is going to be exciting as well. We've got a lot of great things to share with you. There is a congregational meeting coming up in February, uh, so mark your calendars for that. Y'all will want to uh, be able to hear about, um, about the things that we've got planned and, and what we we're doing. Um, but I tried, to, I tried to think of what I wanted um, the church to hear on the last uh, Sunday of this year. And so I picked a passage from Revelation. But before we get into that passage, one of the things that uh, my wife liked to do, my wife and I like to do a lot, is to travel. And traveling involves quite a bit. You've got you to find a place to stay. For us, the most important things is, is finding the right places to eat. Um, we like going to, to, to restaurants. And so my wife will usually send me like, hey, these places look good. And then that means that I'm supposed to start looking at the reviews of these places. And she's appreciative of that to a point, but then becomes really annoyed with me uh, and a little bit perturbed because I overanalyze reviews quite a bit. I dig really deeply into reviews. You know, you're, you, you've got good pictures, things look pretty good, you know, your website looks okay, but what was the actual experience like? And so I, I'll admit, I am way too much of a review reader. Now, many of you probably also know that churches have online reviews. Uh, we have online. We have an online review. We've got Google reviews. I think there's 25 of them when I looked this week. We're a five-star church, so uh, those of you who bumped up our ratings, thank you. Um, those of you who want to knock us down, please don't. Um, but I, I like reading church reviews. Um, sometimes I'll look where friends I have that are pastors um, to see what their church is like. Uh, I'll look in places that I've lived or churches that I've known of and see what they look like. And, but my favorite is when an article will come out on some type of thing, and Apple News will give me uh, something on my feed of funniest church, church reviews. And there was one not too long ago, and I wrote some of them down. And um, some of them are, are, are reflective of our, of our day. It's like, you know, um, great music and message, but the coffee was meh, two stars, you know. Um, <laughs> I don't know how the coffee is this morning. I made it, so if it's bad, it's all on me. Um, I don't normally make the coffee. Uh, some of them are just really actually funny. Um, one of my favorite was Nicolas Cage in the movie said there's supposed to be gold in this church, but I couldn't find it. Any advice? Um, that's a great review. This is my favorite one. It says, I went to the church without walls, and there were walls everywhere I walked. Name is highly misleading. Two stars. <laughs> I mean, that is, that is an ultimate troll on a review. Um, I think that is what you're supposed to do on a review. 
But why am I talking about reviews this morning? Well, they're reviews of seven churches in Asia Minor. And Asia Minor might not mean much to you, but it's the modern day area of what we would consider the country of Turkey. And they're in the first three books of Revelation. And these reviews of churches are written by the, by the opinion of the only person whose opinion actually matters, and that's Christ. Each of these reviews follow a generalized pattern. There's, a, there's an opening address, followed by some words of rebuke or commendation from Christ. There's a promise to the one who conquers or overcomes. And, and they each end with a statement of, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, within these seven reviews, there are a couple of churches with only positive reviews, nothing negative said about them. Most have mixed reviews of, you're doing pretty good, but here's some areas you need to work on. And the church we're going to look at today has absolutely nothing positive said about it. It's the only one with an entirely negative review. And what's fascinating about each of these, as you read these, is there are numerous references to, to, their, to their history, to their geography, to customs or products that come out of these areas. And you have to do a little bit of historical digging to really get the full thrust of what it's being said. Now, in the case of this particular church, Laodicea, as we're reading the passage, you'll see that this is a church that seemed to think pretty highly of itself. If the church was self-rating, it probably would have given itself five stars. But as we mentioned, there's nothing positive that Christ said about it. So Christ gave this one zero stars, probably negative stars, if he could have. Now, we need to talk about Laodicea a little bit and get a little bit of the understanding of the city, since that greatly impacts our understanding of the accusations in the review in this passage. Now, Laodicea is one of the seven main churches, as we talked about in Turkey, and it's located in western Turkey. And it was one of the three cities that formed a triangle in the Lycus River Valley. To the north, there was Hierapolis, which formed the northernmost part of it, which was known for its bubbling, mineral-filled hot springs, which a lot of people went to for its medicinal purposes of the day. To the southeast point of the triangle was Colossae, which was known for its cool, refreshing spring water. Finally, at the other end of the triangle was Laodicea. Now, Laodicea was the richest of the cities because it was at the center of the crossroads at all four points of the compass. And even though it was in a very fertile valley, the city's main vulnerability was it had to pipe in the majority of its water supply. Now, I did a deep dive into the water supply of Laodicea this morning, and I'll try to, and I'll save most of the details of that. But it had to pipe in its water from about, from the south, from about five to six miles away. And most of you have seen pictures of Roman aqueducts, the large tiered structures of which they, they got water. They had to pipe in their water, which wasn't unusual for the day. But this one was especially technologically kind of complex for its day. Since it started in the mountains, it had a double pressurized system. So it took it underground, most of it was underground, and then it took it back up to a filling area, and then it was distributed throughout the, the city. It also had several places along the way for filtration of the water that was kind of highly mineralized and more so than what you would have wanted to drink. And interestingly enough, as I was looking into the archaeology of this in Turkey, in 2015, they discovered a large marble block called the Laodicean Water Law that lists fines for disrupting or tampering their water supply with up to fines of a year's wages at that time. So Laodicea took its water very seriously. Now, it suffered a devastating earthquake in 60 AD, so about 35 years before this letter was written. I'm going with the date of the book of Revelation being written about 90 AD. And the city was very wealthy. 
In fact, it was wealthy enough that after the city was destroyed in this earthquake, it refused any assistance from the Roman emperor in rebuilding the city. Now, can you imagine any American city that suffered any type of tragedy like this where it had to rebuild, that it refused federal or state assistance? It just doesn't happen. There's not even a city that's that rich to be able to do that. But Laodicea was rich enough to rebuild itself. Now, several other things that stood out about it that'll be, that impact this passage is it was famous for sheep that produced a very uh, luxurious, expensive, and soft black wool. A temple nearby had a leading ancient medical school with a very famous ophthalmologist of the day. And one of its greatest impacts was uh, this the ophthalmology program that developed an eye salve that was used for several um, conditions of the day, and it was exported all over the Roman Empire. So with that understanding of Laodicea, we're going to look at what Christ said in Revelation 3, 14 through 22. Revelation 3, 14 through 22. So here now the reading of God's word. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would which you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I've prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers... I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, I pray that through your Spirit you would open our hearts and minds to what this passage is saying today. I pray that I would explain it clearly and carefully, and that this is something that we would walk away and be changed as a church and as a people because of. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Now, before we dig into the passage and, and, the, and the outline that you have, I want to make a few statements and be clear about a few things. Number one, I believe in the church, the larger body of Christ. Even with all of its public stumbles and fumbles that we've read about over the last year, the last couple years, we as the church, as God's chosen people who've been redeemed by grace, are Christ's representative to this earth at this stage in history. Second, I don't believe that these letters to the seven churches represent different church ages, as some people will try to make them go back. Um, won't spend time on that, but I think these were letters that were written to actual churches at that time that have generalized messages that we can still gain from today. So, for instance, Sardis was a dead church. Thyatira tolerated sexual immorality. Pergamum tolerated false teaching as well as practiced sexual immorality. Ephesus had left its first love. There are others that talked about trials and tribulations and persecutions that they would face. So I think each of these could be a message for the church today, but some like to go back and try to say, all right, this period of time seems to match up here, so we're going to say this was this period of the church, and we're going to say this is this period of the church. I don't think that's a good interpretation of this passage. Third, even though there are things to criticize in the modern church, it is still the body of Christ. 
However, we must take a hard look within at ourselves. I think we as a church spend so much time looking outward and critiquing the world, sometimes critiquing other churches, that we often lose sight of what we, as the body of Christ, are doing when we really need to be taking a hard look at ourselves. Finally, and I want to be very clear about this, this message is not directed to or about any particular denomination, movement, or church in Little Rock or anywhere else. If you think I'm talking about a specific church or a specific type of church, I'm not. Whether it's a large church or a small church, whether it's people that wear suits or people that wear designer denim, I'm not talking about any particular type of church. I am, however, particularly aware of our own church at Central Hope Church as I've studied this passage and as I've thought about it and how these rebukes may apply to us here at Central Hope Church. And I hope we will all consider that this morning. Now, with that being said, first of all, let's look at the announcement to the church. And we see that this letter is addressed to the angel of the church. And I won't spend time on the debates of whether this is an actual celestial being or whether the word, Greek word angelos could be used in the more general sense as messenger. I do believe, based on the context, that it was a human messenger to this rather than a celestial being uh, that this letter was going to. But we do know that these words came from Christ to John. So it's definitely worth considering the way that Christ describes himself. First, Christ describes himself as the Amen. This is the only place in Scripture where this word is used to define Christ. It's like related to Isaiah 65, 16, where Yahweh is called the God of truth, using the Hebrew word amen, meaning a truth, affirmation, or certainty. So this is something that's inherent about Christ. It talks about his character, which is firm, fixed, and unchangeable. It refers to his person of who he is. Second, Christ identifies himself as a faithful and true witness. This is a reference to what he says and what he does. And we recall John 14, 6, where Christ states that he is the way, the truth, and the life. All of Christ's words are accurate. They're certain. They're reliable. What he says and what he desires will come to pass. Finally, Christ describes himself as the beginning of God's creation. And the Greek word for beginning, arche, means source or origin. Our English translations through their wording might seem to imply that there was a beginning at some point to Christ. However, it is just the opposite. It means that all things find their source or their origin in Christ. Christ introduces himself in Revelation 1.8 as, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So Christ introduces himself as truth and the one through whom all things come. Second, the accusation to the church. And in the first part of this accusation, Christ focuses on their actions. He says, I know your works. You are not cold or hot. Would, you, would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and either cold or hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, there may be some of you, like me, who grew up hearing a specific teaching on this passage, that God wanted you to be hot for him. God wanted you to be on fire for him. God didn't want you to be lukewarm. So if you weren't going to live for God, just go ahead and be cold because God wants to know where you stand on things. So just go ahead and live that kind of life. That's quite the opposite of what this is saying here. It's taking our modern American terminology about the Christian life and taking that and putting that on top of the book of Revelation. But when you understand the water supply and the understanding around, or the surrounding geography 
of Laodicea, it makes sense what this passage is saying. To the north, you had a city with renowned hot springs that people went to for its healing properties. And to the east, you had a city renowned for its refreshing cold water. So hot water is useful for physical healing. Cold water is useful for those who are physically weary. In fact, hot and cold drinks were just as desirable then as they were today. What's not useful or desirable is lukewarm water that's stagnant, that doesn't have any quality to speak of. And just like lukewarm water, Christ says that this church's works are worthless. They're useless. You provide neither spiritual healing nor spiritual refreshment to your own church or to those around you in your city. Christ says this lukewarm water makes him want to spit it out of his mouth. Now, the ESV chose a very kind way of saying that, but the word that's used there implies a furiously spitting it out, almost vomiting it out of his mouth when you go back to the word. Second, he focuses on their attitude. So he anticipates what, he would, what they're going to say to this, and where they say, for you say, I, I, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. But you don't realize that you are wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. So Christ is here invoking their, their pride and their wealth. They think they're a great church in a great city. They took the attitude of the city around them. We were destroyed by an earthquake, and look what we built back up on our own. We've got two temples. We've got multiple gymnasiums. We've got a large amphitheater. We've got all this stuff that we built back up on our own. Look at what we've accomplished, and look what we do for you, God. Look what we do for you. But Christ looks at them and says, whoa, wait just a minute. Your wealth and your accomplishments mean nothing to me. In fact, the way I see you is spiritually pitiable and poor because you've done nothing that I consider worthwhile with all of your great wealth and resources. In fact, you're blind to your own spiritual condition. You're famous for your medical school and your eye salve, yet you're blind to your true nature. You may have the finest black wool that's coveted all throughout the world. You may even wear it, but that means nothing to me. If you could only see your spiritual condition, you wouldn't see the fine garments that you're wearing you would see that you are actually naked in my eyes. And so I think this two-part accusation, as I read this, adds up to a church that's self-righteous. Unlike other churches, they're not rebuked for their teaching. They're not rebuked for any immorality in the church. They're rebuked for being worthless and then not seeing it because of their pride and their wealth. So the way I add up in the context of all these letters is, I think this is a church that probably taught the right things when they gathered. They probably had their doctrine and theology lined up. They probably even did some of the right things in in service to others. There's maybe even some form of outreach to others, but it was out of a sense of obligation instead of out of a sense of love. They ministered out of a sense of moral superiority. There was nothing that was spiritually healing or refreshing about them to others. But worst of all, They were affected by the sin of pride. They were absorbed with themselves and their own interests. They were arrogant, self-sufficient, and pleased with everything that they had and everything that they were. But they mistook their physical prosperity as being a spiritual blessing from God. 
This harsh rebuke from Christ reminds me a lot of what he said to the Pharisees, that they did things for show and, and, and to be seen by others, that everything was right on the outside when people looked at it, but inwardly they were rotten because of their self-righteous pride. The ones who knew God's law so well, better than anyone else, that they made up additional laws so that they didn't break any of God's laws, were so blind to the grace that was right in front of them. Tim Keller said this about self-righteousness. Condemning others while also excusing ourselves is what allows us to hang on to both our self-righteousness and our sin. And one of the things that's sad to me as as I think about the church in America, it's often the people we consider the more liberal theology, to use that word, who are most faithful in serving as we sit in our doctrinal purity and our ecclesiology and judge them for their things that they hold to. So what if our theology is good, but it doesn't reach our heart and then into service for others? Christ sees how naked we are in that. It's in our heads and it's not in our heart. Maybe if the world experienced something spiritually healing or refreshing from the church, we'd have an opportunity to show the true gospel to them. Christ sees that we are spiritually naked. And you know what? The world sees it as well. Now the advice from Christ. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. So what's the reversal of a a lukewarm state, one that produced a stale, vomit-inducing works? It's simply return to Christ. Let go of your self-righteousness and take hold of His work and His righteousness and His identity. What Christ doesn't say here is just important as what He does say. He doesn't say, do better, try harder, follow this guideline more than what you do. He instead directs them back to the source of true righteousness, which is himself. Acknowledge that you are spiritually poor and spiritually empty, and Christ will give you pure gold that has been withstood the refining fire. This makes me think of the passage in 1 Corinthians 3.12, where it talks about our works and how they'll be judged, and wood, hay, and stubble, and gold, silver, and precious stone, and what's going to pass through the fire of judgment, and what will last. And what will are those things that are done excuse me, those things that are done for Christ. And Christ is offering to give them pure gold. Recognize the dark nature of your sinful pride and come to me for pure garments of white so that you can cover yourself. Turn to me in your blindness and I will give you back your spiritual sight. We need to take a hard look at our own spiritual condition and get back to the source of all this grace, which is in Jesus Christ. I think as the American church, we've lost the actual essence of Christianity which is Christ himself. Why does the world look at the church and see emptiness? Because the church often is just that. It's empty. It's not a place of refreshing waters of grace that overflow in love. It's often, it may be a show. It may be more rules that we put on people to bind them in these things. So how do we get back to where we need to be? We get out of the way and we get back to Christ. So what would a church look like if it were that? It would be a church focused on the first and second greatest commandments given to us by Christ, of loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving others as ourselves. A church that understands what grace means to be loved by God and to love others. 
We're saved by grace. We live by grace. A grace-filled life is marked by a love for God and others. Love produces obedience to God. It just flows naturally. Fourth, the aim. Those whom I love, I I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Now, some commentators um, take a, a, a... There's a lot of things written about this, and a lot of commentators don't agree on this. And some would argue that this was an unsaved church because of the rebuke that Christ gave to them. However, I would contend that because of this statement, where Christ expresses his love for this church, that this could not be an unsaved church. He desires repentance from this church. He desires a restoration of fellowship with this church. He wants the church to be in his image. And I actually find this last section to be beautiful in the love that it shows from Christ to a wayward church. This letter to Laodicea was written to give them a chance to repent. It's a letter of correction to point out their ways and to call them back to himself. Yes, there's initial definitive act of repentance at salvation. But in this fallen world, as we did today, as we confessed our sins and heard the assurance of pardon, we know that in our lives we far too often stray and find it too easy to follow something else and put something else in the place of Christ. So what do we do? Something we say here often. We repent and we believe. It's not, okay, here are the things that I've got to do to follow Christ. I need to read my Bible more. I've got to pray. I've got to go to church. I've got to clean this up. I've got to do this. I've got to do this. No, it's a turning to Christ first and then everything else will follow. We've had the order wrong for a long time in many churches. As a believer, you identify yourself first and fundamentally as a loved child of God in Christ and that you are that person by grace through faith, as you live out your new identity in Christ. And as you turn to Christ in repentance, the rest of that will follow. As you love him and you receive his love, you will start doing the quote-unquote the right things because they're flowing out of that love for Christ. It's not a self-righteousness. It's a righteousness that's imputed by Christ and given to you. You don't do the right things first so that you can come back to Christ. Doing that only keeps you in your poor, pitiable state longer and cheapens the grace that's offered to you. Fifth, the appeal. The final paragraph in this passage. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and him with me. Christ's rebuke is intended to bring about a restoration and fellowship with his church. His rebuke is intended to bring about a restoration and fellowship with his church. Now, there's several interpretations to that last passage that we just read, including one calling people to salvation where, where Christ is standing there at the door of your heart, knocking, waiting on you, letting to come him, to him. But I don't think that fits the context of this passage to the church. I found this to be a beautiful picture of the love that Christ has for his church. Just think of, of the condescension of Christ that that is that he's been left out of the church. He could certainly go in. He could certainly force his way in. But he's standing outside the door of the church, knocking patiently, waiting for someone to let him in, to restore him back to the place of where he's supposed to be, at the center of the church and at the center of our lives. We are the ones who let him out of the church. Yet he's patiently waiting for us to once again have fellowship with us. And I find that such a beautiful picture of the love of Christ. I contend, as I've said before, that much of the church in America has left Christ out. 
Maybe it's some churches that are preaching a works-based gospel and, and it binds people in their lives and, and self-righteousness through legalism. Maybe some churches are, are cheapening the gospel to make it more culturally appropriate in 2023 and people are living in self-sufficiency. Maybe we left Christ out while we've chased other gods and, and other goals in the, in the social and political realm. Maybe we got so busy being Christians that we forgot what the gospel was and what grace is. We became so self-focused on what we do in the church and that we lacked for nothing that we forgot to invite Christ to be a part of the church and let him in the door. The letter to the church is ends in the same formula as, as to the other six. He that has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And just before that, a promise is given to each of the seven churches. It says, and the ESV conquers, other translations say overcome. And in this case, be granted to sit with Christ on his throne, as he also conquered and sat down with his Father on his throne. So we are conquerors because Christ conquered for us. So how do we live as conquerors as, or overcomers? Well, John talked about that in one of his earlier epistles in 1 John 5, 4 through 5. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? A life of faith is how one overcomes the world and becomes a conqueror, not through striving harder, but simply by faith. Faith is how we overcome and receive the promises contained in each of the letters to the churches. It's how salvation has always been, by grace through faith in Christ. So if you don't remember anything else this morning, just remember this. Christ's rebuke is meant to bring restored fellowship. So put away self-righteousness and take hold of the righteousness of Christ. Take hold of Christ's righteousness and put away self-righteousness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you that so often we stray, yet you never give up on your people. You haven't given up on your church. I pray that we would be something that is spiritually healing and spiritually refreshing to those in our area of Little Rock and as we have contact with other people even beyond the area of Little Rock. I pray that you would help us to repent in the areas where we need to repent and that we would turn back to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.